Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk to Dr. Georgina Hickey about her book titled Breaking the Gender Code, Women and Urban Public Space in the 20th Century United States, published by the University of Texas Press. The book does a whole bunch of really interesting things. Um, What was it like to be in urban spaces as a woman? How did that change? Um, To be honest, there were parts of this book that were incredibly familiar to me, and also some experiences in the book, especially kind of the late 19th, early 20th century that I had never imagined or thought of. So there's loads of different things to get into here um, to understand these experiences, the things that impact them and influence them, and much more. So, So Georgina, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. That was a great introduction. I'm I'm really excited to hear um, what resonated for, for you and what surprised you as we uh, as we have this, this conversation. Well, I'm sure we will get into it, but before we do, can we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Okay, sure. So uh, my name is Georgina Hickey, and I am a professor of history and affiliate faculty in women and gender studies and urban and regional studies at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. Um, I teach classes, unsurprisingly, on US history, uh, gender history, and urban history. And this book, uh, on the broadest level, this book comes out of a longstanding fascination that I have with parts of society and cities where there are rules, but those rules aren't always explicit. I want to know, like, are they? How do we know what they are? Whose interests do they serve? How do they get perpetuated? Why do people follow them? Um, And then, of course, who's willing to challenge them? This is a book that's very much about people who chafed against the rules surrounding gender-based behaviors in public space and who sought to change those rules. Public space is this kind of inherently messy place 
And that's really the appeal for me as a historian. It's in spaces that are kind of supposed to be for everyone, but actually aren't, or people aren't on the same footing when they're there, um, that conflicts tend to emerge. And where there are conflicts, historical records tend to get created. So historians like myself get get drawn in because we can ask questions about what's, what's going on. Uh, in public space, we often treat uh, the rules there as just common sense or good manners, but I think there's a lot more that's going on there. Um, accessing public space is bound up with political standing and social status and economic opportunity. So that's kind of on the big level. On the more um, you know concrete level, I just happened across um, a little film clip of some feminists protesting what they would, in the 1970s, what they would come to name as street harassment. Um, and it really kind of brought the kernel of the idea for this book together. Because these activists in the 1970s were connecting women's treatment in public um, to women's larger position in society. And I started taking some of the way they were interpreting harassment, gender-based harassment, and applying it to what I knew about other time periods and, and other places, and, and found this kind of resonance across different moments in the 20th century. And it was, um, you know, seeing those patterns and connections and really the longevity of some of these issues that kind of kept the momentum for for the book going. And honestly, it kind of made it hard to stop because I just kept finding <laughs> new connections and new permutations. But at some point, you have to shift gears and stop the hunt so you can mm. actually try and put together <laughs> what you found and, you know, put it out there for the conversation. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely reading this, I could imagine kind of, wow, how did you not see the threads. I, I can definitely see how you saw the threads, but like decide which examples of them to include because there really clearly were kind of so many as soon as we started looking at this um, and this lens of understanding kind of urban space and gender relations, uh, which maybe we haven't really done a lot before. So because it might be kind of a new way of looking at things, can we talk a little bit about definitions um, and make sure that we all sort of understand what you mean by terms like urban gender segregation and maybe some examples of what this looked like in the earliest part of the book in the 19th century yeah so uh urban gender segregation is a term that i use to connote the myriad ways that gender organized cities uh, it's a fairly complicated and at times quite inconsistent system of both formal and informal practices uh, that defined spaces in relation to the gender binary categories of men and women. Um, gender segregation is something that manifests um, in a variety of expectations, stereotypes, restrictions, even what get labeled as, as protections. And again, sometimes it's um, bound up in the rules of etiquette in other times and other places, it's actually slapped on signs. So one of the most concrete examples of urban gender segregation that probably most people are familiar with is our tradition of labeling uh, public toilet facilities by who's supposed to use them, men or women, often not even saying what's in the room. It just the room says women, and we generally know what that means. Um, but there's a lot of informal things about who's supposed to be where, how you're supposed to behave, 
when you're there that fall under this kind of umbrella of, of gender segregation. Um, gender as kind of one of many social statuses that help to organize cities. We've talked a lot about race as a way of, of organizing urban space um, and gender, class, ethnicity, you know, also are a part of, of creating that sense of order and the rules um, around around cities. And there's kind of a complicated relationship um, between these these different uh, these different systems. So um, gender segregation in particular is sometimes hard to recognize because the assumptions about what we often think of as the inherent characteristics, of men and women kind of obscure it, they naturalize it. Um, and again, oftentimes how people are supposed to behave be is labeled as just common sense, as opposed to being approached and recognized as a social construction. Um, and of course, also complicated by these intersections with other social identities. Um, so 19th century, okay. So if that's kind of what the system is writ large, it looks different in different moments. Um, so in the 19th century, gender segregation relied heavily initially on really the exclusion of women, or at least the exclusion of women from public space um, if those women wanted to be perceived of as quote unquote respectable women. Um, so, uh, by the time we get to the mid-19th century, we're starting to see some accommodation of women in public space, but, but there's a heavy theme towards, towards sheltering women. Women who are deemed respectable either stayed out of public space or they kind of sheltered themselves from the pu most public aspects of public space by having an appropriate male escort or by using one of the spaces reserved for women. One of the things that starts happening in the second half of the 19th century in American cities is we start to see these ladies-only accommodations uh, showing up. So this would be include things like a first-class rail car reserved for women or service windows for ladies at uh, a post office or a bank, ladies' entrances and waiting rooms at hotels. So gender... Uh, so gendered space that was physically separated um, from other space, which was inherently then ca categorized as, as masculine as, as for men. So these gender-specific accommodations, which are very much a kind of late 19th century uh, creation, are really uh, only accessible to more elite women, white women, native-born women, economically privileged women, um, leaving less privileged women exposed to harassment and disdain when they're in public because they're not following the rules of not being there, not being properly escorted, or just not being in the right place. So 19th century gender segregation was heavily about separation of, of the genders, which um, left women with not a lot of options for moving around cities without experiencing intrusion, judgment or even or even violence mm. thank you for taking us through that i think it helps kind of explain remnants that we might still see of kind of a sign saying ladies window or whatever or things we might read in my case at least especially like in novels about like a women's boarding house and it's like well what are the social constructs that are making these things happen 
Um, and how do all these pieces fit together into an urban environment? Um, and I think the word, at least for me, remnants was important because it doesn't stay the way you've just described. No. <laughs> so can you tell us about kind of some of those initial changes to this story in the early 20th century and what caused these changes to happen? Sure. Big question. <laughs> so gender-specific accommodations in the 19th century, as limited as they were, do help set the stage for changes that arrive with uh, with the 20th century. They at least recognized that women had a reason to go to the bank or to the post office. And there was a lot of controversy about women going to the post office because it implied a level of autonomy. What were they doing? <laughs> um, a lot of big discussions around having a ladies window at a post office. Um, but what happens as we move into the 20th century is we have this rapidly maturing industrial economy, these rapidly expanding industrial cities, uh, and that really starts to force some change. Uh, women increasingly enter the paid workforce, record numbers. Women increasingly live away from their families. Women, by the time we get into the early 20th century, had both the need and desire to use public spaces, including mass transit and the many alluring options for public recreation. Um, and we're going to see the system of gender segregation shift, those kinds of gender-separate accommodations are just not going to meet the needs of these big industrial cities of the of the 20th century. Um, but the connection between gender and access to space uh, doesn't disappear. It's really more that the the messaging around it starts to shift. Um, etiquette manuals, for example, in the early 20th century are quite vehement in claiming women's right to be in public space. But there's now this strong message that women have to take care of themselves. They need to not take up too much space, not be too loud in, the, in how they dress, how they comport themselves. Um, and they really need to either take care of themselves or pay for whatever help they needed. You know, pay a porter to help carry their bags or carry their own bags um, that, that the expectation is women wouldn't necessarily have that male escort they had in the 19th century um, and that they were they were going they could be there, but they couldn't take up too much space. And there's still some what I call kind of sexual or moral panics that that crop up early in the century that kind of drive home these messages that women can be there, but but they're vulnerable. These spaces are are dangerous to them. Someone might be there. Um, lurking to to do them harm. So so the message, the way in which women kind of faced a restricted public space was often around that women needed to be very careful. Um, they had they could be there, right? But it was going to be somewhat dangerous for them. So they had to maneuver um, carefully and without much assistance. Yeah, and I think this is the part where it starts to sound a lot more familiar. Um, right, women right. are welcomed here, but, but. You know, access is available contingent on, right? Right. And what it really means is that when women did encounter 
problems, when they had negative experiences, when they faced harassment, when they faced violence, um, many times women were blamed for it. it. It's kind of like, well, we told you to be careful. You were not careful enough. Therefore, whatever happened to you was was your fault. Um, and I think that probably has great resonance mm-hmm. with anyone who, um, you know, was raised as a girl, lived as a woman in in the city, even in the later part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I think probably still has a lot of resonance um, yes. now. I, I can't speak to America, but <laughs> outside of that, I think it's definitely still applicable. Um, I wanted to ask about sort of something that kind of disrupts this idea of that what you're telling us about the early 20th century, it is in many ways still so resonant, still so applicable. Um, but your book isn't just sort of saying, well, this is when it started and that it's been exactly the same the whole way through. You document moments or places or groups that were able to push back against this um, or kind of move the needle a bit. And I wanted to ask um, particularly about African-American women doing this in public spaces in the sort of middle of the 20th century, both kind of what were they doing to push back? How successful was it? And why was it that it was African-American women who were in the position to be able to do this? Well, I think that saying African-American women were at the vanguard of challenging gender segregation is is absolutely the right language to use. I feel like I should I should fill in a little bit before I answer that question, though. Um, so when we see the kind of uh, more restrictive and separation-focused gender segregation um, messages changing around, you can be here, but it's going to be dangerous, so be careful. Um, there's there's a fair amount of pushback in the early 20th century, and it's actually part... I, I wrote a book on Atlanta at the turn of the 20th century on, on working class women, and I saw that history differently after I started researching this second book. Um, and what I mean to say is some language of early 20th century reformers um, who advocated for women's only boarding houses and who advocated for better treatment of working women and stood up for women who were harassed. Um, it was much more passionate defense of women and saying, let's not talk about their morality, right? We need to talk about the the actual situations they encounter. So there's there's kind of a, um, a rich tradition of, of challenging some aspects of, of gender segregation in the early 20th century and threaded from the 19th century um, all the way along um, is is a long history of activism on the part of African American women. Um, so the the essence of your question. So I want to emphasize that while African American women are not the only women um, challenging what's going on, they have a particularly um, robust history of of doing so. Okay, so what did they do? African American women demonstrated just a really keen awareness of the broad political implications of the gendering of public space. Um, They understood the ways in which um, what was sometimes cast as gender privileges um, was, was used as a form of racial discrimination. 
So when American cities finally start building public restrooms in the early 20th century, um, that's at the same moment that Jim Crow racial segregation is really cresting. Um, and so we see this tradition of restrooms for men, restrooms for women, which were essentially white when you see the only other restroom is for colored. And African-American women say, you know, where do I fit? This kind of denial of um, African-American women's gender respectability um, was very much bound up in this larger pattern of racial discrimination. And African-American women recognize it early on and they challenge it. They do challenge it around um, bathrooms, around waiting rooms, um, but particularly on public transportation. Um, there are cases of, of women, of African-American women getting on paying for a first-class ladies' car ticket on a railroad, um, being ejected, and then filing cases in, in court to um, object to that. Um, and we get into the 20th century, the, uh, the kind of theater for that, those protests shifts towards streetcars. And then, as many people are probably familiar with, by the time we get to the mid-20th century, it becomes buses. And African-American women are really at the forefront of resisting that form um, of racial segregation, but gender segregation is bound is bound up in that. Um, there are many cases, one that's very famous that probably most people are familiar with, but also some others where black women insist on the same kind of deferential gender treatment that was often, not always, but often given to white to white women. Um, Mary Church Terrell in Washington, D.C., uh, an African-American reformer in the an activist, civil rights activist in the early 20th century, um, asks the white man for a seat. He refuses. She gets in there anyway. He insults her. She slaps him. Um, and and really kind of defending her actions on the basis of he did not appropriately treat her as a respectable woman and kind of insisting upon that. The most famous case of this, of course, is Rosa Parks uh, in the 1950s. And we've learned a lot more about Rosa Parks in, in the last few years. And I'm really excited when my students know that she was... Um, uh, had a long experience as an activist for the NAACP before she got um, uh, to that that day in December in Montgomery where she sparks the bus boycott. Um, but we still sort of couch what happens there as something that was solely about race. But in that case, Rosa Parks, um, the bus driver wanted her to give up and give her seat so a white man could sit in the row. And while that was the racial practice, it does violate gender practice that in general, even though there were lots of disputes around it, women were not expected to give up a seat for, for a man. And that kind of becomes her defense um, for, for what she's, she's doing. Um, so African-American women have this, this long tradition of kind of actually asking for some of the privileges and protections that have been given to white women inside this this 
uh, gender segregation system, um, demanding that as a way to challenge uh, racial discrimination. Mm. Thank you for taking us through kind of how those things are tangled in ways that- Tangled is a very good word. <laughs> well, tangled kind of in ways that cause additional problems, but the tangling also sort of provides avenues that wouldn't necessarily be there for other groups. So it's sort of an interesting ball of yarn, really, um, that very much helps us understand and I think put actions like Rosa Parks in a wider context. And we don't think of it as this one woman on this one bus. It's, hang on, this is speaking to a bigger issue here. Um, and because we've brought up the uh, social identity around race and how that is entangled, I want to kind of stay on that, but then add in another element um, to it, because I was fascinated to read about in your book uh, something that I knew exactly what it was, but I had never actually heard the term or heard of it as like a thing that kind of came at a particular time. I guess I had incorrectly, ahistorically assumed this had always been the case. Um, I was fascinated to read in your book that actually, A, it's not always been the case, and B, it's much newer than I would have expected. So can you introduce listeners who also might be in a similar position to me before reading the book? What is girl watching? When? Why? How did this happen? How does this tangle up all sorts of things into the practice, including white supremacy? Uh, yes, in lots of ways. So girl watching and um i i love i love your characterization something that you knew was there but you hadn't really thought about it having a history is a pretty good description of my entire book um <laughs> fair yeah, okay <laughs> i mean I, honestly a lot of the things i write about um you know have caused people surprise my father who has been a wonderful supporter of my entire career this project in particular um, was really amazed when I got a little grant to study the exclusion of women and the ways in which they challenged that exclusion from bars and restaurants. And you've like, you are studying women demanding access to bars. Like, that's a thing. It is a thing. Once you start mm -hmm. to think about what that exclusion represented. So um, lots of things, including girl watching, kind of fall under that category of stuff that was just sort of around. It was ubiquitous. People accepted it. We didn't think about it having a history. We didn't think about it having much significance. Um, but some people at some moments do. And once you start to call it into question, it's kind of hard to unsee it. So girl watching is certainly in that category. Girl watching is a phenomenon that gets its name in the 1950s. Um, it's a very kind of post-World War II cultural trend that's both kitschy, it was supposed to be cute, it was supposed to be fun, supposed to be humorous, but also carries um, a lot of, of meaning and tells us something about um, kind of how women were expected to experience public space. So girl watching um, included these portrayals of men getting pleasure out of watching girls, by which they meant single women, um, because women were married women, girls were, were single, um, treated in this kind of lighthearted, fun way and, and in a way that kind of inverts the, the power dynamics. Um, it's men making fools of themselves, almost as if they're powerless in the face of a beautiful woman that they see walking down the street. And then advertisers pick this up, this 
girl watching, it becomes a trope of many brands advertisings, um, particularly in the 1960s. And I had a lot of fun roving around eBay and buying up girl watching frig fridge magnets and um, uh, bar cocktail recipe guides and um, albums of music to watch girls buy, things like that kind of uh, chasing this cultural phenomenon. But girl watching was a microcosm of how key aspects of, of gender segregation worked. And this narrative, men watching women, was normalized. It's portrayed as a compliment. It really leaves no room for women to say they didn't want to be watched or to say that it didn't feel harmless to them or fleeting or fun. The message to women was that they're being observed and judged. And it invited men to weigh in on when they felt a woman was not measuring up. It was all supposed to be in good fun, but you have to start to question how much was it? Certainly feminists in the 1970s started to question, was this really fun? Um, and what were the actual power dynamics? Um, what did it do to women to feel like every time they stepped out the door, they were going to be judged against generally an idealized white uh, standard of how women were supposed to look uh, and behave. So um, it's feminists in the 1970s that take this phenomenon of girl watching and start calling it what they think it is, which is street harassment. Um, and they come back hard in challenging the narrative of it being just harmless fun. They point out that a woman being observed in an environment where they've been told all their lives that danger lurks is going to feel threatened. They argued that street harassment was on one end of a continuum of violence that had rape and murder on the other end. And they challenged the subtle and then sometimes not so subtle narrative that if women didn't like it, they could always stay home. Um, and this, you know, it it certainly took some people by surprise because girl watching was just supposed to be fun um, uh, for them to say it doesn't always feel fun. It feels threatening and it feels connected to um, fears that have been cultivated in our society for, for all of our lives. It's really the message that, um, you know, the feminists, as they start to challenge that, this is the message they put into uh, Take Back the Night marches that begin in the 1970s. While they're now most common on college campuses, they were originally an effort to reclaim urban streets and demand that women be able to travel cities without fear, to insist that women deserved a better answer to the violence they faced than to just stay home, which was always the advice, right? If you, if you don't like it, if you can't take it, just don't, just don't go out. Um, I think this is really a, a key element here, one that's fundamental to challenging urban gender segregation and explains why part of why it was hard to do because you're taking an issue that had been written off as something fleeting, something individual, something even fun or supposed to be a compliment and exposing its systemic nature, talking about the trauma of a lifetime of feeling evaluated, observed, um, pointing out how how common these experiences were in the lives of women and, and girls and turning the responsibility for addressing the issue back on a society that tolerated and even encouraged this harassment. And, you know, saying 
what you think is a compliment lets me know that you are watching me. I now feel targeted and it, and it takes me down this road that feels unsafe. I think that that's such a, I agree. It's a good description of the book overall, kind of looking at things <laughs> and going, oh, wait, hang on. Uh, we can look at this more historically and more analytically. Um, can we, I want to pick up though, what you mentioned briefly in that very helpful answer. Um, the idea that it's not just being looked at and judged, it's being looked at and judged against a type, against some sort of ideal. So can you tell us a bit more kind of about this and maybe how sort of race and racial ideas play into that aspect? Yeah, uh, I mean, race is certainly a part of it, but um, we there's class aspects to it as well. Um, sexuality comes into play, especially when you're talking about the mid 20th century. Um, when in the midst of this kind of post-World War II prosperity, you know, there's the, the, the image that it's all good and it's all great. Um, but, but parameters for what you were supposed to be and do kind of, uh, narrow. Um, so we see significant harassment of, um, lesbians who are visibly present on the street because they don't meet this type. So the, the single girl of girl watching was inherently supposed to be heterosexual. She was supposed to be, um, you know, we'd all assume she's on the road to being married and being tucked away safely in the suburbs with a few kids. So let's, you know, let's just treat this as a fun moment before, before that happens. Um, and then she's inherently white. Um, so women who start who, who don't meet that kind of standard. Maybe they're older than what is kind of the acceptable young single, quote unquote, girl. Um, they're visibly queer. They're a woman of color. They appear to not be following the rules, which left them open to a different kind of harassment. Um, that's the, the part of the sinister side of this. In, in gender segregation in that system, if you're not doing what others deem you're supposed to be doing by these kind of unstated rules, then it opens you up to being interfered with, inter harassed. The restrictions on other people to leave you alone seem to evaporate because they think you're not following the rules. Um, and so it, in some ways, you know, if we have a period like this where we narrow the conceptions of of what's acceptable and how you should behave when you're out, it opens up these opportunities for others who think you are not following the rules to interfere with you. And that felt very dangerous um, to uh, to many women. No, that, that but, they, but it's heavily individualized. I don't know if it, it had a community, like the message to women is you're responsible for how you appear in public and ultimately the treatment you receive as if you could just behave your way out of um, situations that feel sketchy or dangerous to you. And it's your responsibility and you weren't supposed to trouble anyone else. Um, and, and that message is communicated in, in um, kind of etiquette manners of the day. Um, in the way uh, uh, rape was treated as something shameful um, that the, you know, with a kind of victim blaming um, associated with rape, um, instead of thinking about these kind of larger patterns in society um, that actually kind of encourage uh, 
certain types of harassment and violence. You've told us a little bit about um, kind of pushback to this with the take back uh, the night marches, which again, still continue to this day. Can we talk about some other kinds of pushback? Um, Even, I think it's accurate to say, as you do in the book, institution building. It's not just protest, but also kind of, okay, we don't want that. What can we create instead? Can you tell us about some of these things that were done in the 1970s to combat these issues? Um, And to what extent they were kind of completely new creations versus maybe building off older things? Yeah, I might just make a friendly amendment to the question and and try and capture it in the slightly broader frame, because I think um, this matters. So people who are bound up in the historiography of uh, the United States in the 20th century, we tend to treat what went on in the early part of the century is very different from what went on later in the century. Um, And it is, but there's also some through lines um, that kind of surprised me. So I want to to emphasize them. And one is kind of pushing back. So on some level, um, the pushback takes the form of just articulating different ideas. So there are reformers in the 1910s, um, including Jane Addams, who's probably the most famous American woman of her day, um, uh, as well as activist feminists of the 1970s, really kind of spinning new theory, like putting new um, language on what's going on, calling out some of these tropes about danger and women's morality, challenging victim blaming. Um, And those are important, important discussions. There are also some direct action protests. Those are particularly um, pronounced and easy to find in the in the 1970s. Um, and then what you were alluding to, there's a process of institution building in both the earlier part of the 20th century um, and then again in the the 1970s, the long 1970s. So institution building is an important theme in challenging urban gender segregation. Um, and there are some some commonalities um, in how it's done. We find people and organizations who start creating public accommodations and other types of institutions um, that were meant to either serve women in ways that they were being underserved by the free market or to provide respite one reformer called it outposts, (laughs) places that were kind of quasi-public spaces that were going to be comfortable for women in um, a larger urban environment in which more public space was still hostile to them. So uh, in the early 20th century, this included things like cafeterias, um, boarding houses, recreation centers, uh, the the big institution here that showed up in American cities across the country was the Young Women's Christian Association, um, moving away from its um, heavily religious roots in the 19th century into a somewhat more secular um, social service kind of oriented uh, organization uh, in the 20th century. And YWCAs are pretty ubiquitous and anyone walking around in in any 
medium-sized to large American city um, can possibly find one. Um, these were lunchrooms, like affordable restaurants that were designed to feed um, working women, um, but also um, places for classes, places for um, just rest and relaxation, libraries, um, gymnasiums, things of, of that sort. The YWCA is fascinating to me because when they went to build these lunchrooms, these cafeterias, um, they did so with the explicit intent of showing the market that a profit could be made from serving women. Um, so they made sure to run their, restu their restaurants to show that there was a profit to be made there because um, there just weren't these kinds of services that felt accessible and friendly to um, to working women in the early 20th century. Uh, in the 1970s, so if we fast forward, the women-specific or at least women-friendly institutions um, that we see folks creating, and these are very much coming out of the social movements of the day, include restaurants and bookstores and coffee shops and social clubs and credit unions and health centers. Um, in both eras, there were efforts to build spaces that we would today call call third spaces, places where women could exist, socialize, relax, connect, uh, organize outside of homes or, or workplaces and without having to spend uh, a lot of money. Um, these are essentially community centers in many cases, spaces to meet and recreate and, and learn. Um, in the later part of the 20th century, these women's centers included spaces like the Women's Building in San Francisco, which um, is still there if anyone's in the Mission District of San Francisco. It's covered in murals, so it really does um, stand out. Um, and some of these women's centers of the 1970s actually began as squats in, inspired by housing rights activists who took over abandoned, um, unused buildings to create their spaces there. And most of the women who do these squats um, and these building takeovers end up getting evicted by police. But the actions that they created allowed some of the groups to find or negotiate access to, to long-term spaces and actually led to women's centers um, that persisted for, for years after the, that somewhat extra-legal beginning. Thank you for the friendly amendment um, and adding in all of those pieces because they're great um, and very well. It's, li it's like literally in some of these cases, it's women literally building women into the urban environment. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, it was building new buildings. The YWCA commissioned and built lots of buildings in lots of cities across the country. Um, in other cases, it's you know it's more vernacular. It's taking over existing buildings. But creating a space, putting up signs, you know, making space for women in those in those ways. And I think even just kind of that difference is really interesting, right? Like literally making space versus putting yes. up signs. Like that's very evocative and kind of what does this actually look like if you're walking down the street? And also I think demonstrates sort of the scope and scale of the problem. Like if putting up a sign saying this cafe is for women, if that is enough to make a difference. Like, hmm, what does that tell you about what that street was like before such a sign might have gone up? I yeah. It, it, what what did this 
feel like? What was the need? And it's fascinating. So, um, like some of the restaurants that the the feminist oriented restaurants that open in the 1970s, um, it wasn't just about making space. They took aim at at a lot of gendered practices in American life. So um, things that again rarely get questioned, right? But this is the 1970s. Remember, you know. The wait staff would very consciously put the bill for the dinner in the middle of the table, not handing it to a man. They would ask the table who wanted to taste the wine. And, you know, unlike every other restaurant out there, assume that um, that it would be a man at the table who would taste the wine and approve it for the table, kind of challenging some of those spaces. But also with the, when it came to bars and restaurants, we haven't talked about this much, but um up through the early 1970s, um, there were many, many uh, eating and drinking establishments that are reserved formally or informally for men, and women are actively excluded. Um, women were not supposed to go into a bar alone. The assumption was that she must be a prostitute if she showed up in a place like that. So, you know, there are all these kinds of um, social norms against women drinking in public. So some of these institutions are creating um, spaces where women could do that comfortably on their own or with other women, or sometimes with men as well. At the same time, they're also challenging those restrictions. Women um, in the early 70s very much stormed into these men-only bars and restaurants. And in the parlance of the day, they desexagrated them. That's a mouthful. It is. <laughs> but gives very much an idea of kind of what has changed or what hasn't changed since then. So thank you for kind of giving us those really specific examples. You know, we can imagine what it's like to sit at that table and go, oh, that would make a difference. Or wow, if that does make a difference, what are we talking about here in terms of the problem? Um, so I, I mean, honestly, I could ask you about more things that happened in the seventies for a long time, but, 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 but let's, let's move ourselves chronologically forward. Um, Obviously, it's a good point to remind listeners that the book has loads of these cool details. So if you want to know more about exactly what was happening at the end of the 1900s or what's happening in the 70s and all the things in between, um, please read the book. It's got all these great details. Um, but if we move forward on our sort of highlights tour version, can we talk about the 1990s as our next phase? Um, because at this point you talk about in the book, we see a lot of new laws. So not just social change or efforts being made on the ground but like big deal federal laws to what extent do they actually fix or improve any of these problems around gender and urban spaces that we've been talking about yeah well <laughs> okay um i so revisiting the 90s um which i of course lived through but revisiting them as a historian was uh, really an amazing, <laughs> it was an amazing part of doing this project. You really look at things differently. I think the the 1990s um, it, are definitely a significant moment because we see many of the issues that women, reformers, activists had been discussing for decades, finally making it onto the legislative agendas uh, not just in the federal government, but also heavily in the state government. Um, you know, 
we see an unprecedented number of women elected at all levels of government. And one of many things that they do with that access to the political system is they push for legislation addressing violence against women, inadequate public facilities, in particular bathrooms, um, pressing for anti-stalking legislation. The 90s is when we discovered, named, and sought to address stalking. Um, and, and certain kinds of harassment, particularly the harassment of women breastfeeding in public. So, uh, well, I believe that each of these did improve gender equity and urban spaces in some ways. I would be reluctant to label them, any of them, as a wholesale success. So uh, the push for better equity in public bathrooms is a good example. In the 1990s, we became very fixated on what was called potty parity. Um not just this idea that we needed the same number of public restrooms for men and women, but that we needed to think about what kind of facilities folks needed so that they could access them in relatively the same amount of time. And so here's probably one of those other places where you, you were nodding along as a reader, right? All of a sudden people start talking about the fact that you go to a big concert and a woman goes off to pee and she's gone for an hour and her male companion goes off and he's back in 10 minutes. Like, what's the deal? Why are women so underserved? We get kind of fascinated with that question in the 1990s and answer it with, with some legislation that says, well, we need to build bigger facilities uh, to accommodate women. And on the surface, you think, okay, we're doing that. Not to be Debbie Downer, but I'll say, well, remember, we're still doing it in this gender segregated way. Um, and the way in which we do it is we force new buildings and renovating buildings to do it, but we don't retrofit old ones necessarily. Um, so it's very haphazard and ends up in many cases, the way in which we accommodate women is by removing facilities from men. And I'm just going to say that doesn't work. <laughs> that that doesn't make people favor potty parity um, generally. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of, um, yes, there's increased recognition of uh, women's needs and particularly good that there's a recognition that, that what women need, um, because they might be dealing with menstruation, because they're more likely to be tending children, might be a different set of facilities, they might need more. So what could we do to accommodate that? Good questions. I think the answers often um, fell, fell short. Um, with the Violence Against Women Act, this broad ranging bill that included a lot of resources um, for uh, addressing violence against women tended to be fairly reactionary. A lot of it was about helping women who'd already experienced violence. So lots of good questions, an amazing amount of awareness of issues that women had been raising over the course of the 20th century, though I would certainly not say that we found the solutions in the 1990s. And, mm. and I don't think we should be surprised by that. I feel like I want to I say, um, considering the nature of urban gender segregation, which is a very dynamic system of both formal and informal restrictions, I don't think we should be surprised that one decade in which some legislative attention is dedicated at women's issues doesn't solve all the problems.
Mm. Yeah, no, that that that's a fair point. Um, especially looking at this as you've done in the book over such a long period of time. The idea that three years in the nineties is gonna fix it all is <laughs> probably probably not um quite so likely. Um I suppose though, I guess that raises for me a question because as you've documented in the book, this is such a persistent issue. And in fact, as you just mentioned, the impetus for the laws in the 90s comes out of decades of women's work trying to kind of raise this issue and getting attention on it. So while only three years or only a few years in the 90s is insufficient to solve sort of a century or over a century's worth of problems, why why did it only bubble up for a few years in the 90s? Like why hasn't the idea of women's rights in public spaces been a kind of more persistent topic at that level of conversation? Why has it been so overlooked? Um, well, my activists would tell you that um, representation matters and and women are still underrepresented in legislative bodies. So are the people who would raise the questions in the room um, is, is, is something to consider. Uh -huh. um, but also, I think we circle back to something we talked about earlier, the way in which a lot of these issues get dismissed as not consequential enough to uh, merit attention, um, get written off as things that, that individuals can just manage on their own, not seen as part of a systemic uh, problem. So, you know, there's, there's those pieces. Yeah, the cultural piece of this does matter. Cultural change is quite amorphous, but um, th they go together. You'll see, you'll see conversations um, in the kind of broader culture. They'll filter through and you'll see pieces of it come up in legislation. The legislation piece may die down. The culture piece may come back up. Um, if you if you take this kind of broader view, I would say the trend is toward more attention toward uh, these issues and not less in the on the kind of biggest level. Um, but they're also just hard issues. Some of these are hard issues to to solve uh, in terms of addressing these kind of really. How do you legislate out toxic masculinity? Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, that, the, the legislation works on much more, you know, focused and specific level. But but we're, you know, we're talking about systems that are, are built, um, you know, into these kind of uh, deep levels and dark crevices of of our culture. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it, so, <laughs> yeah, no, I think so. And, and in some ways, I'm going to ask you, I think, kind of a harder question, um, okay. if that one wasn't hard enough. Um, given this challenge, right, how, how do you legislate out toxic masculinity? How do you solve problems so built in? Um, are there lessons or implications we can take from your work in this book? Um, I hope so. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, I'm happy to, what do you I'm, what they are? <laughs> I, yeah, I'm happy to mention a few of the lessons that I hope people will take away from the book. Um, uh, but I also hope, expect that there's going to be other things that resonate in different ways for for different different readers who come at this with a different set of experiences. You know, that's something to recognize. 
there's a lot in this book that that may read and feel differently depending on who the reader is, how and where they grew up and what and what their experiences were. I'll say this. Okay, so a couple of lessons. Having given talks over the years about things from this book, public bathrooms and harassment and women being excluded from bars, visual pornography in cities, harassment, harassment. One of the things I've learned is how much putting a name and a context to discomforts and the violences of daily life matters. I have never given a talk and not had someone come up to me after and share something from their personal experience. There was this time when I was a child and I saw this, or this happened to my sister, or, or. Um, and, and there's kind of a similar theme in all these stories that people have shared. You know, people being generally girls, having been scared, but felt like they wouldn't be believed if they made a fuss, or they were actively dismissed for raising the issue. And, and so I hope that one of the lessons is when somebody says, this makes me feel like less or unsafe, I hope we listen to them better. And when many people are saying it, we need to consider this probably isn't an individual problem. It's not a one-off. There is probably something more systemic at work. Okay, so that's one. Um, two is that interlocking system of oppressions, that real messiness that we were talking about earlier. Um, this matters because it makes each of these systems harder to challenge and it sets potential allies against each other. Um, African-American women in the early 20th century went to their supposed white allies in the women's suffrage movement, in the votes for women movement, and said, we need to talk about Jim Crow racial segregation that's being instituted on public streetcars and white women said, no, 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 we need to just talk about voting. You know, and they just dismissed their experiences. <laughs> um, they didn't understand the ways in in which these systems um, were were connected. And uh, we'll say at best that was a missed opportunity. Um, that was probably, you know, more of you know, more than that. Um, there are a lot of restrictions that get labeled as protections um, that kind of allows them to masquerade as privileges. But but these can undermine autonomy and standing to whom they are applied and do real harm to those who are excluded. So, so kind of trying not to boil everything down, trying not to make it only about race or only about gender or only about anything, right? These systems tend to um, connect to each other. Um, and that's where a lot of the power comes from. Um, Those are some great one things. That I, <laughs> okay, one, one more, or maybe one or two more. Um, one that I think about a lot is the way in which um, women's autonomy has often bodily autonomy has been dismissed in the face of other people's rights or comfort. Um, we haven't talked about the controversies surrounding public breastfeeding in the last few decades, but this lesson for me emerges so clearly there. Women are told again and again to leave public space to feed their children because people around them might be uncomfortable. 
Now, as of 2018, we do have laws of varying quality in all 50 states that that challenge this. Um, that's in some way or another state the right to breastfeed in public. But it, it doesn't mean, right, that we've had a wholesale cultural shift. The narrative is that women could just cover up or just go nurse in a bathroom still runs rampant. It's this old, old narrative that it's on women as individuals to put the comfort of others first. Um, and then, of course, there's that kind of darker hint that if they don't do that, they they deserve whatever negative consequences they receive. So that I think that's something to watch out for is... Um, you know, whose rights get put first and and why? And is it rights or is it comfort? <laughs> you know, just, you know, women are taught to make other, the people around them more comfortable. Um, and, and that comes at a price. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and then the last piece, last mm-hmm. one I'll throw in, is change, ha- change happens slowly, but, mm-hmm. but it can happen. Um, a funny thing happened to me while I was working on this book, which was that suddenly many of the issues raised here found traction in a new wave of grassroots activism and public discourse. Um, a lot of us historians aren't used to feeling quite so relevant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> women, you know, in the in the early 21st century, you know, we have women challenging the way in which um, sexual harassment and assault cases are handled on campuses. There are um, uh, groups, community grassroots groups that are showing up and demanding that transit companies launch anti-harassment campaigns. The whole Me Too movement takes over social media and topples some very powerful people. Um, women launch websites where they can post pictures of men who harass them. Slut walks bring back, you know, after women are told, well, you you should, ex- in 2011, you should be expect to be harassed or raped if you're dressed like that. And women respond, bringing back the energy of the, sometimes the slogans of take back the night marches and, de- not, you know, demanding an end to blaming wicked women for harassment and, and violence they experience in public. I'm still a bit amazed to see ideas that activists from the previous generation fought so hard to launch enter the everyday vernacular like people talk about rape culture now that that's not been um you know a a phrase that's been in the popular vernacular until quite recently um but if you read the book you'll know there's you know there's a long history of people who worked to help to help uh bring that into to common language Mm -hmm. um so I do think that that things are happening, and I'm pretty amazed at the the widely dispersed recognition. Certainly not universal, but recognition of many of these issues that women um, fought pretty hard and against a lot of hostility and dismissal um, uh, to bring into into our cultural dialogue. So I mean, it's still in the dialogue stage, right? It's mm-hmm. not done, um, but it's been fascinating to watch and fascinating to watch younger activists in the 21st century, you know, really leveraging new technologies and things, expand it out. So when they start talking about harassment and violence in in public space, they go beyond the boundaries of, of gender. Um, there um, is a lot of activism on the part of and on behalf of trans folks and 
uh, gender non-binary folks, international communities, and it's it's really kind of expanded out um, to a wider discussion of what public space could and should be. Hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking us through those. And I think um, if anyone's not enticed to read the book at this point, uh, that gives them a lot to get their teeth into. Um, but I do have one final question for you, if you don't mind. Um, the book is obviously done and out there. Is there anything you might be working on now that it's done, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview for us? Sure. Thank you. Uh, I am working on another book. I guess it's what I know how to do. Um, so I am working on a project on Detroit, Michigan. Um, I live in the larger metro Detroit area. And uh, this book is looking at Detroit in the latter decades of the 20th century, which were very difficult decades for um, the city during um, a period of population loss, deindustrialization. Um, and it does have some similar themes to this in that what really motivates me is I'm fascinated by people's ideas about what makes a just city, what makes a good and livable city. Those questions are very much embedded in breaking the gender code and they're very much a part of this new project. So what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm looking at a white woman um, who served on Detroit city council for more than 32 years, very popular elected official, but one who was deeply connected to the most progressive left um, activist communities in the city that were really willing to entertain some fairly radical notions about how to um, rebuild uh, this this city. It really flies in the face. If you know anything about Detroit, there's a lot of doom and gloom around um, its history in the last 50 years. And um, this story is people who found it to be a hopeful place and a place where we might really design more just and equitable cities. And they certainly don't get everything they want, but um, they fight a really interesting fight. Fascinating. Well, while you're off working on that, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Breaking the Gender Code, Women and Urban Public Space in the 20th Century United States, published by the University of Texas Press. Georgina, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda. It's been a blast. <laughs> <laughs>